Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the pre-order for the gemstone flutter dress is open now. The flutter dress is my all-time best-selling style. This is the third spring. I'm bringing it back. It features a soft gathered neckline, universally flattering flared skirt, and voluminous flutter sleeves that are fully lined for elbow coverage. Yes, I am most proud of that little detail and thing that I figured out. Last time I offered a print version of the flutter dress, which was the foil floral flutter. Sizes sold out in literal hours. That dress is actually the reason I started doing pre-orders in the first place. Um, when I had my first print flutter, it broke everything, literally. So basically, I anticipate the gemstone flutter will go quickly. If you'd like this uber popular dress in a print that I custom designed, pre-ordering is the way to go. The pre-order cannot sell out and pre-ordering guarantees you get the size you need without any stress. The pre-order closes overnight on Tuesday, March 1st. So the day after this episode goes live, if you're listening to it in real time-ish. Um, and all pre-orders are guaranteed to ship by April 4th. That is exactly two weeks before Pesach. That's also when I'll be bringing in limited stock of the Gemstone Flutter. And there will be no time to do a restock before Pesach. So especially if you'd like the Gemstone Flutter before Pesach, pre-ordering is your friend. This is the way to have the opportunity to basically just cross one thing off your list now and not have to stress about it. You can get yours by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Oh, and if you're looking for something with a little more instant gratification, you can still shop the Flutter dress in four different solid colors also by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Some sizes are sold out and others are running low, but availability is still pretty good and there should be something there for every size. There was last time I checked. So it's definitely worth checking out. Thanks for your continued support and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki and Squids, and on today's show, I talk with a therapist about the power of storytelling and how it can help us connect to each other. She shares what the cult of culture is and what it tells us, how we can replace neurotic thoughts to better serve us. We also talk about modesty and holding on to our moods and feelings. I had never heard of the narrative method before I was introduced to Sherry Foos, but I did find myself relating to a bunch of the concepts she includes in this unique approach to storytelling. There's real power in connection, and I'm glad I have the opportunity to learn more about this system. As a little kid, I was really excited. Um, I was really excited by the world around me, and I like to demonstrate that in my impromptu uh, dance and other uh, performances. I had my own show. Uh, I mean, only I knew about it, but it was a good show. It came in on time, and um, I think it appealed to a large audience. On time and on your budget, right? There you go. <laughs> so, it was like, was there something about you know the way that you grew up, there, or you know, just being that you know kid who had this zest for life that made you want to become a marriage and family therapist? Well, actually, the piece that had to occur in order to bring that cycle was that I was in a very abusive home um, and my father in particular um, and so what happened was here I was at my core I think as most 
children are. I mean, children do come in with lots of specificity, but, you know, usually the world around us is pretty interesting. And it's not until we're shushed or shamed or punished or, you know, whatever may happen to us that it would even dawn on us to be less than curious, less than optimistic. And so I think it's a long road back to who you really are. And I have an opinion based on just working with so many thousands of people that we all have uh, a similar challenge. It may present in a number of ways. And I don't in any way suggest that everyone is um, the same or should be. I don't think there's just such a thing as uh, normality. Um, but I do think there is a very clear sense that, like, I'm okay, and my life is going in the right direction, and I feel there's purpose and meaning, and I'm doing my part for having eaten the food and drunk the water all these years. Okay, cut that. Don't say drunk the water. What? Uh, <laughs> um, what? You know, you... You you use this. You say you don't believe in normality. What do you mean by that? What do, what what do you? I'm I'm interested by that phrase. Can you elaborate? Oh, yes, I think that um, as we see um, with social movements in this country, that words start start to lose their meaning when they're overused. So to me, normality is one of these problematic concepts. It, you know, like what is your IQ? Uh, what is your ability to get into a good college? Uh, what is your career? You know, how much money do you make? All of these things that fit into uh, an always obsolete formula for what makes a valued, valuable person. Um, but the thing is, if you look at the way the culture is now, especially moving as fast as it is with all of um, what we call the cult of culture, just the, that constant onslaught that has these messages that are very clear to everyone that we're not good enough. And it's easy to think, well, that one's, you know, cuter, skinnier, richer, whatever, or uh, they must feel good enough. But the truth is, no matter what it is, whether it's something that is within yourself or a cultural oppression, everyone gets the message that they don't fit. And that's where the idea of normality becomes an unattainable uh, sort of limitation because, well, hey, if I don't fit, if my skin's the wrong color or I, you know, my religion is uh, wrong for other people, then why even bother? And then we start getting isolated outside our own groups. And That's such an interesting way of thinking about normal, because, you know, what you're saying about looking at other people and feeling like, you know, there's always someone who is more, you know, like you said, richer, prettier, skinnier, more, or, um, that was actually a huge part of why I started the podcast. Cause I really feel like we have these feelings, like everyone's going around feeling insecure about, and they have someone who they're holding up in that space as, you know, if only I was like whoever, and I bet you that the person that they're looking at has their person, you know, and, and sometimes it's even the same person, <laughs> you know, the back and forth at each other. I guarantee you that the people who have the jobs or the relationships that we aspire to, I bet my life on it, 
that they have at least the same insecurity, except the added pressure to maintain the image of what they really cannot even be. And, you know, people always say, oh, they knew what they were getting into. No, they didn't. Nobody can imagine what it will be like to be us later in our lives. And you know what? There's so many things with um, getting older that make us feel more comfortable because we're more clear about why this matters or, you know, staying, um, staying with something that's difficult. But um, it's a challenge. For sure. It's, it's so interesting when you tie it to getting older. I am not old by any means. I'm 27. You're but old. <laughs> I, felt, I felt very old. Ironically enough, when my older sister, who's one on top of me, when she turned 30, I felt really old. Yeah. And I was like, and I was like, wow, you're 30, you're ancient. Um, but when I think about how I feel now versus how I felt, let's say in high school, then you're right, you do find you know, I, I can at 27, I can look back at myself at 17 and say, yeah, there's a there's a steadiness here that, mm-hmm. that definitely wasn't there at 17. And I can only imagine what that is like at, you know, 37, 47, 57 and 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 beyond. And and yeah, it's it's it definitely this this idea of letting go of normal is very is very powerful. You are the creator of something called the narrative method, which is a really interesting framework and kind of way of looking at the world. And I'd love if you could explain a little bit more about what it is and, 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 your, and your work in that area. Okay, well, well uh, I started the narrative method in 2013 after graduating um, from a program called the narrative, um, narrative Medicine at Columbia University. And it was inspired by um, a physician um, who was also a, a literary uh, PhD, who, who realized that doctors needed to learn empathy. Um, there had always been so much emphasis. We, we all still sort of automatically have knee-jerk reaction that, you know, like, I don't care about his bedside manner. We just want to make sure this is a good surgeon. Yes, of, of course, gun to your head. But the truth is, we get better. We comply with the protocols more easily. And we feel better when we have a relationship. That relationship doesn't mean they have to spend hours and hours and, you know, come to our parties. But what it does mean is the simple care of presence, eye contact, being with someone in, in, um, in their pain and in their concerns. So extrapolating this out, because I'd already been a marriage and family therapist for many years, and I've always worked with groups. Um, I think the power of groups was clear to me when I was in high school and I was in a group therapy, realizing that, oh my God, these people who I've never seen before, who I would not have stumbled over, are telling my story. So it can't just be about me. And once you have that bigger perspective, you belong to the world. Even if it's a thing that you struggle with, that they struggle with, you still are not alone in this thing. So now you're putting together all these very deep pieces, how one works through, how I worked through so much of the struggles I had because of my natural inclination to be in a state of wonder and the bad circumstances of abuse. Um, So putting together all of these pieces, I started the narrative method as a group experience, not psychotherapy, 
more of a sociological experience where we can come together as diverse individuals and groups, um, companies, um, organizations, universities, whatever population, to come together in groups and simply listen to each other's stories. And we do this in various formats, but essentially in listening to each other's stories, we're employing the hard wiring that every culture since the beginning of time was born with, which is we have these hooks for storytelling that need to be connected or else we are isolated. And within these stories are the sense of um, not just information, danger, news, how to, how to be in our culture. Um, all of the information is embedded in the way we tell our stories as well as the content. So um, because it's also the very funnest thing in the world to do, and because it allows you to skip through the discomfort of small talk that goes on too long, mm -hmm. you get to know people very quickly. So um, in addition to the organizations and businesses that we work with, we offer free Zooms every week um, for people to come to from wherever you are, obviously whatever you're wearing, um, and just be yourself and enjoy sharing stories inspired by unbelievable prompts, fascinating videos, new ideas, and all wrapped around the 12 core concepts of the narrative method. And these concepts are all designed to be a combination of perspectives and tools about how to deal with the cult of culture and the way that it interferes with who we really are. You've used that phrase cult of culture uh, a couple times in, you know, in only the few minutes that we've been talking. What is that? What do you mean by that? Um, I'm going to read you the exact definition of culture, which I uh, conceived of long before the internet, because I grew up with it too. Um, it's the messages from the media, marketing propaganda, social media, and noise on the internet that confuse and shame you into conforming to groupthink, unattainable standards, and superficial opinions. So it kind of sounds like Okay, I had an, I'll, let me backtrack. I had an experience in college where we had to um, we had to debate an issue. There were we were each we were assigned um, at the time France was banning hijab, mm -hmm. so um, um, and this was part of like a also like some kind of cultural class or whatever. Um, so we had to pick out of a hat either to be for or against the ban, and then and then on the day of the assignment we were split into these two teams and and each side had to. Um, had to argue their point a couple of people randomly and the professor didn't tell us who before would be um who that would be um were assigned as like the judges i guess you could say like the moderators or whatever and i was one of those moderators i was on the day of i was really annoyed actually because i had done the work and then i was like oh well your work whatever hand on the paper but like you're gonna do this other thing um so I was picked as one of the moderators and I used a phrase basically, and, and each side argued their point for and against the ban and why it's important, blah, blah, blah. Um, I still have the opinion that bans like that are harmful and should, and are wrong and should not like, no. Um, and I used the phrase towards the end of that day. I said, I said something like, I think that we all know what the right answer is here. 
and um and the professor actually came up to me afterwards and said i just want to let you know that that kind of phrasing is like you you can't say that um what she what she basically meant was that you know by assuming that there's this that there is like an overarching right or wrong answer then you're then you're othering people and and you shouldn't be speaking like that um so i apologized and and that was that like i apologized to her i no one in the class seemed to particularly care so i didn't um feel a need to make an apology to a class but it seems to me like this cult of culture is these assumptions that we make about what the quote right answer is um yeah like what people think of as political correctness or or something like that that there's a a way that we that we should be thinking and if we're not thinking like that then it's a it's a shameful thing that we need to be keeping to ourselves is that kind of a right way to go about Absolutely. It? and by the way who is the they that decide it's it's there's not like a little secret department you know where they keep the shades down <laughs> we we all tend to be you know, either self-identified or identified by others as belonging to one or the other group when it gets down to one group or the other. But typically we are just split in a zillion pieces and kind of not encouraged to consider something on our own. Um, I think the point is well taken that there's not one monolithic right or wrong but even that goes too far when people uh, see the need to debate, you know, things like um, do unto others or, you know, thou shalt not kill. Things like, really? There's really a, a, a gray in there? I don't think so. Uh, but we have gotten to a point where we lose the ears of other people if we don't state things in the most vanilla way. And then, you know, when you take your passion out, I, I just don't know how we're going to change the world, you know? Right, what are some of the, you know, what are some of the harms in that? Because I do think that to a certain extent, there is value in having everyone behave. Like there is value to a certain of point of, 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 you know, of having this like, I, I, like you said, you know, you gave that extreme example of, you know, thou shalt not kill. I also think like thou shalt not be a butthead to other people. Like that to me is just, that's something that we should all kind of agree on. Um, and and I, I do think that there's value there. You know, there's value there in having those kind of rules that we all agree on. Um, but is like, at what point does that get too far? And does that become okay. something problematic? That's, that's such an important point because that is positive social conformity. Like you get to the traffic light, it's red, you stop. You know, somebody cuts you off. Here's an implicit rule, but um, maybe don't give them the finger. Maybe just take a beat to realize, hmm, maybe they didn't wake up to wreck your entire life. You know, whatever. We need positive social conformity. That is, at the very least, thou shalt not kill. We need to infuse uh, children, adults, and each other with the permission to consult the kindest part of ourselves. Come on, guys. I mean, that is very, very opposite from negative social conformity that is designed to either sell soap or keep people, you know, divided and 
separated, conquered, however you want to look at it, um, to win your side of an argument. But it is imperative, especially with 8 billion people on the planet and a pandemic and 8 billion people who kind of deserve to eat and drink clean water. Um, we, we must be concerned outside ourselves and the way to ensure that those things can be done fairly requires some positive social conformity. Yeah, I hear that, that, yeah, the idea of positive social conformity versus negative that, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic and an interesting way to look about it. Um, one of the, one of the things that, you know, these, these core concepts, which are, you know, these core concepts of the narrative method that are a, a way to kind of find ourselves within this cult of culture, I think, a way to, um, to, to find, you know, what, what we, what are our true opinions and what are our, and what are the things that we really feel are important, not the things that we've been told should be important. Um, one of the topics that you talk about a lot is something called relational mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd love for you to just explain what that is and go a little bit more in that, because it's a fascinating concept and I'd love for people to learn more about it. Cool. Well, as I said earlier, I think the power of the group, which people who come from healthy families experience, it's this feeling of people want to know what's going on with you. People are supportive of you and so forth. Well, not everybody has a healthy family or maybe they had a good model, but then their work environment isn't safe, whatever. Whatever we can do on our own to create meaningful relationships one-on-one or in groups has a really strong rippling effect for us as individuals and the, the larger culture. So in the past, I grew up in the me generation and the idea was, you know, I would do what I wanted to do because I wanted to do it. Um, and we saw yoga and mindfulness and meditation and all of these practices that help people get more in tune with themselves. And that's all great. But relational mindfulness takes it a step further and says what's more delicious is young. You, us, and me less. Because when you live with purpose, it has to necessarily be extended outside yourself. So when you have a relationship that really is cherished um, or just someone that you have to live with and it's in everyone's best interest to find ways to make it work. So we put ourselves aside for the benefit of the relationship. And this is a practice that really helps us better understand others appreciate others and get along better. Does this mean that 24 seven I'm neglecting myself? No, it just means that I value the, um, the utter hierarchical importance of relationships with others um, to my life and to the world. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. When, how do you think that relation relation excuse me relational mindfulness applies to kind of just like like we all know that relationships are built on communication right so you know and everyone says like the what's your secret to a great marriage it's communication which i don't don't know if anyone really even knows what that means anymore i certainly don't know like we talk to each other all the time is that communicating i guess so but it's you know how does relational mindfulness play into how we communicate within our relationships 
But the communication is conscientious. So what that means is as we're speaking, we're aware of our choice of words, our body language, our tone. I'm not crossing my arms and saying, Ritsky, I love you. You know, I don't know, maybe your grandmother said it was like that. Um, That we match, that there is um, um, a clear communication between how we feel and what we say and do. Now, sometimes there's a disconnect because maybe there is something that we have to understand about why it's hard to say what we really are thinking or feeling. But I think what, what we practice is this. When you're listening to someone else's story, you just put yourself aside. And that is a wonderful feeling because you're liberated from your own worries right now. And you're present. That's what presence is, that you put yourself aside. Now I'm going to try and hear your story, not based on what I've put together in the past, but just listening from your perspective right now. And if I could do that, I have a much better chance of understanding you. What's the what's the need for me to agree or disagree? I want to understand your story. Later on, depending on if that story has to work with mine, maybe I, I can consider um, some other impacts. But it's that easy to hear people. When you listen to the story of someone whose values are really different, who you disagree with profoundly, Maybe they've done something that you you just would never do, you don't value, et cetera, et cetera. But if you truly put yourself aside and listen from their perspective, it's not that easy to put yourself aside, but if you attempt to do that, you have a far better chance to understand at least the way they're thinking. It doesn't mean it's going to satisfy you, but that understanding goes a long way to solving bigger problems. And... So relational mindfulness is just a way to live with the appreciation that other people also have internal lives. Other people probably think that the things that matter to them matter or should matter. And I think it just helps us tolerate um, the differences that we have to live among. Right. What does that look like, putting yourself aside? Like, how do you even, how do you do that? Because I think that on a certain level, we are all most concerned with number one. You know, we're most concerned with ourselves. So what does that what does that look like? How do you do that? Well, to do relational mindfulness in general is is one thing. It's like I'm gonna be mindful of my relationships. But to have a relational mindfulness session with someone would go like this. One or the other would just say, Is this a good time to have a real conversation? If both people agree, then you just proceed. Now, during this time, it would almost be like in a sacred environment, like if you were with, um, you know, your mentor or a therapist or your clergy or whatever. And during that time, you are both in a state of agreement to be fully present and loving and to really, really try and be there for the other. So let's say I'm telling you something and, you know, you go like... (laughs) you know, you make some sort of face. In this environment, it would be appropriate for me to say, um, you know, I noticed you just made that face. And I have to tell you, I'm wondering why, because it, it just made me feel very insecure. Now you have an opportunity to speak to it or not. 
Um, but when we can look at our emotional communication, as well as the content of the words through a microscope and slow things down, we start to realize that, oh, wow, that thing that she said really pushed my buttons. I, I didn't even consciously realize I was making that face. We don't do this to attribute blame. It's got nothing to do with blame. It's got to do with understanding. Well, what is it about that? Oh, she looks, she's so skinny that it pushes my button about this or that. Whatever these patterns of thought break down to meaning for us individually is an opportunity to make a correction, just make an edit. Oh, that's not true. That's like a younger me, misperception, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, yeah, it's also, it's the kind of thing where I found where one of my favorite things to do in conversation, um, not necessarily favorite, but one of the things that I'll make sure that I'm doing, if I'm having an important conversation, whether it's, you know, with a friend or a family member, my husband, whatever, that I will, like, if if we seem to be at a weird, like, stuck, you know, where, where you know, let's say, let's say I'll use a conversation with my husband example, where he seems to just be saying the same thing over and over again. And I'm saying the same thing over and over again. And we don't, it doesn't seem to me like we're really even disagreeing, but we're all just stuck in this loop. What I'll actually, and and we, we both do this actually, which is, I think kind of funny, but I'll say, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying blah, blah, blah. And he'll go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm like, great. We're on the same page. Like that, that's what I'm saying also. And it's and it's a it's a great method to just kind of establish where everyone is. And and like you said, you know, when it comes to a um to a, you know, to, to like a, a a body language or whatever, you know, a weird face or something, be like, well, don't don't make the face of me. Come on. You know, what was the face about? And being in tune to those things really does make it much easier to communicate you know to get to get your point across and to also understand where the other person is coming from and also i love your use of the sense of humor come on what's that face about when you already have an intimacy and safety established you can sometimes cut to the chase and even get your spouse to go really deep because they're not that defended at the end of the day but there are still things that we see not just with friends uh, but with spouses where we are defended for reasons that have nothing to do with our relationship. And so I believe the deeper we can go with each other, the more we can liberate each other and heal from previous misconceptions or, you know, things that really don't need to be carried forward. Right. You, you've mentioned this, you know, these previous misconceptions and, you know, things that we kind of assume to be true. It's come up a couple of times already, what what are some of those things like how do we move past those previous misconceptions because we get stuck i think in a lot of these patterns and they are and and we get stuck in them so how do we first of all why is it so terrible to be stuck in them and and how do we move past it if it is such a terrible thing okay if it's not terrible who cares if you don't mind you know look there's no way any of us are going to achieve anything near perfection so you're liberated from that task and you know that's fine. If you can move forward one degree, you're going to wind up somewhere else entirely. So, I mean, when it comes to certain kinds of misconceptions, well, let's, let's talk about something that is just like an ero a neurotic thought, not erotic, neurotic, a neurotic thought, like, um, 
um, uh, what what uh, if I speak if I speak my mind in class, they'll laugh at me. Um, okay, so if I just recognize that I'm always going to have that thought and make the decision, you know what? I'm going to notice that thought. I'm going to speak anyway, and maybe eventually it'll lessen, and maybe eventually it'll lessen. That's one way to deal with it. It's fine. Another way to deal with it is to inquire of yourself, not while in class, but at another point, where is that coming from? Is that my voice or was that put into me? Or, And if you choose to deconstruct it, you might realize, oh my gosh. I, I mean, I was like a little kid and I gave the wrong answer. The class laughed at me and I went home crying. And I never really sort of closed that chapter. It, 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 there's not one way. The one way is to get to a point where we acknowledge we're the expert in being us. We Nobody was given all the tools. We have to discover them along the way. But we know we resonate when we hear something that, that makes sense. So when you resonate with something, whether it came internally or, or was given externally, that's great. There's, there's no law uh, about you should think these are good thoughts, these are bad thoughts. You know, for some people, that little bit of angst before they publicly speak, maybe they say that keeps me on my toes. So I'm not here to interpret for others, you know? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little dissatisfied with that answer because I'm always looking for the secret recipe and you're telling me there isn't one, which makes me a little annoyed, but whatever. We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to deal with that disappointment a different time. (laughs) But hang on a second. First of all, I love the way you think, and I love the questions you're asking me. People don't typically ask these kinds of questions. So, I mean, you're, you've got a really great analytical mind. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know, but um, the fact that you just said, you know, I'm disappointed in that answer because I like answers. That alone demonstrates so much about who you are. You're not afraid to show me and your audience and yourself that um, you have that sense of dissatisfaction with something. You're not judging that dissatisfaction as like, what did I do wrong for being left feeling dissatisfied? That's kind of a good example of what you were talking about. Like, what's an example of, you know, a neurotic thought? Is it neurotic to think, gee, I'm left feeling unsatisfied? Is it just plain, well, that's just how I feel. I guess so. Okay, I'll take the compliment. I'll sit with that. The, <laughs> um, when you, you know, when we have these, this, this false information, you know, this, this idea of, you know, that, that the neurotic thought is bad or that the, or that the way that we're thinking about something is, is bad. How do we go about replacing that with new beliefs? You know, how do we go about replacing that with new information that serves us better? Okay, so in you have to put yourself in a state of total focus, but relaxation. It's not a job. You're not doing this because you were bad. You don't have to come up with an answer. But I love to lay down, you know, with all of my limbs, all four of them, um, completely supported and relaxed so that I'm just a floating mind and from that in that state and you may use pen and paper if you like uh, I might ask myself a question like um, what's underneath this you know why do I keep having this thought and then I may 
need to jot things down or I, I just may start to discover over time, maybe it's one or more times trying to do this, that there is this old thought that's blocking me. And so when you discover that thought, you're halfway there. It's a matter of real. It's like you, you, when you know that there is something, some kind of splinter inside you, but you can't see it. Then you get the magnifying glass. You see it. Okay, now you know what to do. You got to get the the tweezers and and you can pull it out. So it's really a matter of identifying something and saying, um, "Look, I don't, I, I I don't expect this to shift." throughout every millimeter of myself immediately, but with awareness, it will. That's my intention. And with awareness in the same way that um, you learn to respect someone's pronouns, you might make some mistakes for a while, but then, then you get it. It doesn't have to be some big giant, aha, you know, um, healing of some terrible, terrible thing. It just, it's this the kind of, grooming <laughs> that we can do of um of our minds so that we can flow as powerfully as possible without being held back by um by things that that prevent our process from being successful right do you think that this is a process for everyone like do you think that that this is something that everyone should do no absolutely not i don't think anyone should First of all, I don't think anyone should ever reveal things that feel private to them. If you're ever coerced to do that, oh, I'm going to have a No, what's the difference? So either you take more time or never. That's got to be your call. I don't think there's one size fits all for everyone. And I think that, again, the more you stay connected to yourself, the more it becomes clear, look, I may say I'm shy because this happened and this happened, but it doesn't mean that therefore I have to try to not be shy. Maybe this is my adaptation. Maybe I was always shy, but this made me think that it, it was something that had happened. If I can extrapolate the beauty of modesty in terms of what it means to hold on to ourselves, to hold on to our mind and our feelings. My feelings are not someone else's business or someone else's entitlement any more than my thinking is. I do feel that I owe something to the world and to the people in my life, but it is ultimately up to me understanding what it is I choose to offer. And I think in that same way, by honoring the modesty of your relationship um, with your spouse, your children, your family, your world, your community, all of those kinds of things, I think it's a way of just keeping people um, closer to this idea of um, positive social conformity that, that respects individuality, differences, uh, the values of, of groups, and doing unto others in the very basic ways that can maintain um, a culture that has a multitude of subcultures. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you brought up modesty in this kind of context, because a lot of times when we talk about 
when when modesty gets discussed there is a lot of emphasis on the manifestation of that like the 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 rules around what you wear essentially and there's so much emphasis put around you know you would think that in a that in a culture let's say i'll use i'll use my own you know orthodox jewish culture my own from culture as a as an example you would think that in a culture that is so concerned with modesty we wouldn't be so concerned with what women wear or what they look like but a lot of times the opposite happens and there becomes this fixation on um on 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 what women are wearing and what we look like and and all of that and when you uh, when you when you extrapolate it in the way that you just did and apply it to you know the ways that we feel you know being modest in our feelings and in our vulnerabilities and who we choose to share that with that's a really interesting way of of looking at it and of applying it from a different kind of perspective that to me at least is really more the truer meaning of that of that whole concept. Absolutely. And again, we all are capable of falling into judgments. Um, even if you remove yourself from the internet and all of those influences, you can't completely avoid signage or, you know, the, there are things that happen and what you're talking about that can happen within subcultures, judgments and so forth. Again, I think the best way for us to deal with these things is to just circumvent shame and punishment and appreciate what is it about this that is making me feel I must be in competition. And, you know, chances are you're not alone in that. And if there are other people that you feel safe sharing that with, well, then that's the narrative method. That's the opportunity to say, oh, wow, we both share these difficult feelings or these joyous, loving feelings um, that I may have thought was, was just something that was unique to me. And I actually feel accompanied because I, I realize I'm not alone. Yeah, that's, that's a very cool way of looking at that. I, I really, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. That's a, an interesting way. If this has been, I got so much to think about now. I got so much to think about. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I so appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, the narrative with method with me and um, and with the listeners. If somebody wants to learn more about you, what you do, where can they go? Thank you. Um, I have super enjoyed this as well. Um, they can go to thenarrativemethod.org. Um, you can learn all about us and see the programs we offer. You can get our cards, the TNM DIY human cards. They're conversation cards with really profound, thought-provoking, fun, funny, um, and connective prompts. So you can do it with your own group, your family. Uh, you could do it one-on-one -on -one or as writing prompts. And then you can sign up for our three weekly Zoom-ins, um, Thursday nights or conversations, Sunday mornings are writing. And I would love to have you and your listeners join us in any of this. And really, Rivki, you are a diamond. Oh, thank you. That's that's very sweet of you. And I'm going to link all of that information in the show notes so that anyone uh, who wants to access it has easy access to it. Uh, the last thing that I want to ask you, Sherry, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Sherry Foos, what does it mean to make an impact? Mm. To make an impact is just more mirroring that of, of smiles and joy. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sherry. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you 
you'd like to learn more about Sherry, her links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 16 people listed by Ora Akunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.